Well, for the balance of our time this evening and our time in the Word, we are going to consider the questions that you submitted this morning for our monthly Bible Q&A. And as I mentioned this morning, it's been about three months since we've been able to do this just because of schedule conflicts. As a result, we have quite a few questions. I anticipated that. And that's great. The only downside is that it just shortens uh, the answers and can't maybe go into as much detail as you'd like. But hopefully we'll be able to uh, comment on uh, the questions that were turned in, at least give some food for thought. So grab your Bible and have it ready. We'll turn to some passages. We won't turn to all of those, but uh, we'll uh, maybe mention some passages you can jot down if you want to pursue uh, the issue further. So the first question, very good one. I think many Christians have probably wondered about this. Where did baptism come from? Uh, Was it totally new with John the baptizer or connected somehow with another earlier tradition or ritual? It's a valid question. You read Hebrew scripture or the Old Testament, you don't see anything there. All of a sudden you come into the New Testament, there's this guy, you know, and eating locusts and honey and, you know, dressed sort of strangely and he's dunking people in water. Where did this come from? Uh, Well, great question, valid question. Uh, Let me just give a little bit of background. You are aware of the fact that God chose the Jewish people to be his holy people. And if a Gentile wanted to become part of the people of God, he had to become what is known as a proselyte. And the system of proselyte induction into the nation of Israel had three parts to it. These were not specified in Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament. The Jewish people just developed this sort of as a system or a sort of a gateway into Judaism. And those three parts were called Milah, Tebilah, and Korban. First was Milah. Uh, that was circumcision. All Gentile men who wanted to be a part of the people of God had to be circumcised regardless of their age. Uh, this was an act to show that they realized that they were sinful at the, very, at the level of their very nature. And by this act, the Gentile admitted his root sinfulness. And then the second aspect of proselytization or, you know, uh, the proselyte uh, system was uh, tebilah. And tebilah was immersion into water to depict the willingness of the Gentile to die to his Gentile world and his Gentile ways and his desire to be given new resurrection life with the people of God, the Jewish people. And then there was the third phase, korban, and this step involved an animal sacrifice And when the Gentile offered the sacrifice, the blood of the animal would be sprinkled on him, actually, to symbolize cleansing from sin. So as far as we can tell, that was the beginning of baptism, developed within the Jewish culture uh, in in response to what what do we have a Gentile do if he wants to become a proselyte, if he wants to become part of the people of God. Uh, John the baptizer obviously picked up on that, um, but he went further because he demanded the Jews to be baptized. And if you read in the gospel accounts, you know that this was the rub because they, they had no problem with this guy baptizing Gentiles. But Jews? Now, that was something that the Jewish people reacted to. Uh, but he demanded that as an admission of the need to die and as an indication of repentance from sin to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. And so Jesus continued that practice in his ministry. You can see that in John 4. Uh, with the added dimension that baptism indicates not only death to self, but also a commitment to follow him. Now, you may think, in light of the fact that, okay, this wasn't something in the Old Testament. It seemed to have developed in the intertestamental period, and then John sort of picked up on it. It might be easy to assume, well, then, uh, this, this may be something just made up by men with no approval from God. 
but two verses, you can jot them down. We won't look at them. But Matthew 21, 25, Jesus indicates that baptism is of heavenly origin. That's an interesting statement. And even stronger, in Luke 7, 30, uh, the Holy Spirit refers to baptism, uh, John's baptism even, as God's purpose for man. Two very strong statements uh, for those who would say, well, this isn't something that is all that important, etc. Uh, so that is where baptism seemed to have originated and then picked up by John, developed further, and then something that Jesus followed. And of course, as you're very much aware, at the end of his life in the Great Commission, he commanded it to be practiced in all nations. And he said, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So it's something that's to be practiced to the end of the age, not just a cultural thing, not just first century, etc. Okay, the next question, let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. A good question here on the uh, creation account or coming out of the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, we have this statement in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the question is, please explain Genesis 1.26, uh, where it says that we have dominion over all the animals. This is a very good question, especially in our day and age, of course, with uh, so much confused thinking in society about this very topic. You know, you, you see the bumper stickers, you know, love your mother, mother earth, and we're all part of the same thing, and all the, the extreme, I'm not saying there's not a, a valid environmentalism, but the extreme end of it, uh, etc. So it is important to go back here and get clarity. What is, what is God saying here? Well, a few comments here. First of all, this does not mean, this does not mean reckless tyranny over the animals in a cruel or irresponsible way. Uh, it does mean responsible stewardship, such as using animals responsibly for food, for clothing, and other valid uses. And the reason we can say that is because this statement about man being in God's image and then having dominion is a statement to show that man is unique in relation to creation. He's not simply a part of it. Uh, but above it in many ways. He's distinct. He's the pinnacle of God's creation. And so God granted dominion to man over creation and over animals, etc. And again, this does not mean, and this would be a, a bad picture if, if Christians gave the idea that, you know, we could be irresponsible uh, and, and be reckless and be cruel toward animals or even uh, not be uh, environmentally sound in the way we would uh, be stewards of land, etc. So that would that would completely miss the point. But this is in um, this is in contradiction to much of the thinking of our day, which says that man is no different than animals. He's on the same plane. He's just a part of creation. Uh, he has no right to exhibit any dominion. And God says the opposite. Man does have a right. He's distinct from creation, above it in many ways, and should exercise responsible stewardship over creation land and animals, and that it is proper for them to be used for food, clothing, other valid uses when uh, done responsibly. All right, next question says this. Um, are many, uh, we have a number of questions coming off this morning's passage. Those of you who maybe weren't here, it was the demonized man in Mark chapter 5. 
And uh, there are actually two men, but, but uh, Mark only mentions one. Matthew mentions two. So there were a number of questions coming off of that text. So some of this will be, repeat, uh, will be repeated tonight. Um, first of all, more than one question said, are people today demon-possessed? Does this go on today? And the answer to that question is, yes, it still does happen. Now, the reason why people ask that is because, obviously, most people in this room have not seen a case like what you, we read about this morning in Mark 5. Someone living in the tombs, supernatural power, able to break chains, all fetters. I mean, no one can bind him, uh, etc. Uh, coming out of the tombs, tormenting people, you know, etc. You just don't see much of that in society, obviously. But it does still happen. There are cases of it that occur, especially in more third world countries. Uh, missionaries report similar types of experiences sometimes in very remote countries, etc. So it does still happen. It, I think it is safe to say it's not nearly as common as it was in first century Israel. And I've wondered through the years why that may be. And we can't say since Scripture doesn't definitively say, but I've wondered this. I've wondered since so many of the demons who did that kind of activity in the New Testament era <clears throat> during the ministry of Jesus were sent to the abyss, and that's what they don't want, I've wondered if that has been cause for why demons sort of alter their work, and they still are very much at work today, but not nearly as, uh, uh, nearly as many cases as you see. I mean, you, you've read the Gospels. Jesus ran into it everywhere. Everywhere he went, he, people who were demon-possessed, and, you know, all, he's thrown into the fire. I mean, this uncontrollable type of thing. Now, again, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I think everyone has to admit it's not as common, and that may be a reason that demons have changed their tactics because so many of them ended up in the abyss or the pit for doing that and working that way. A next question related, is there anything a person can do to avoid a demon, a, a demon possession? Well, the surest safeguard is just walk with Christ. First uh, John five eighteen, uh, you can jot that down. It talks about he who is born of God does not practice sin and the evil one cannot touch him. So if you belong to God, you belong to Christ, you walk with Christ, you don't have to fear demon possession. Now, obviously, demons still work to try to deceive and tempt to sin, etc. But when you're talking about demon possession, uh, in the sense of ownership, 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear, you as a believer were bought with a price, uh, and we were bought by Christ to be owned by Christ. We cannot be owned by a demon if we are owned by Christ. So ownership is, is if, if a person is a believer, he is owned by Christ, cannot be owned by a demon. But that's not to say that if we give Satan room, that he won't grab whatever room we give him. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't give place to the devil. And in that context, it's saying, deal with anger. Don't go to bed angry. You're giving place to the devil. Paul indicated in 2 Corinthians, in the early chapters, that a lack of forgiveness gives room for the devil to work. So we don't want to assume, well, we're Christians, so therefore, uh, as Christians, we don't ever have to worry about you know, anything we do. We can just do whatever, and we don't give Satan a foothold. That's not true. We certainly can give him a foothold. But as far as ownership, possession, um, if you belong to Christ, you can't be owned by a demon. Uh, related to that, uh, question is um, here, let's see. Uh, um, is there anything a person does to put themselves in a position where they are vulnerable to demon possession? Yes, there are some obvious ones. Spiritism, trying to contact spirits, dead people, uh, occult practices, drugs. Interestingly, the Greek word pharmakai translated often, it's translated two ways in our English translation. Some translators go with sorceries and others go with drugs because they're not sure exactly which way to translate because they're intertwined. Uh, 
the use of drugs, I'm not talking about penicillin for infection, I'm talking about the use of drugs to open your mind up is a clear gateway to demonic activity. And that's why the two words are so closely related, or the one word, the one Greek word, is translated two different ways, either sorcery sometimes or drugs. Uh, those are obvious ways, but as I said, we also open ourselves up to the work of Satan by refusing to forgive people, uh, by unchecked anger. So a, a number of ways we can open ourselves up at least to demonic influence, if not possession. Uh, and then the final question here on this, what about when a believer begins cutting? You'll remember from the text this morning, I just made a passing comment that this, here was this individual cutting himself with stones. Well, that may, if a person is cutting, that may or may not be demonically prompted. Uh, be careful uh, not to assume, you know, it's sort of a case-by-case basis. For example, Satan prompts people to lie. Jesus called him a liar in John 8. He's a liar and he promotes lies, but every time a person lies, it's not automatically because of Satan, right? I mean, we can lie on our own, can we not? We don't need Satan to lie, but Satan does promote lies and he prompt lies. So in a similar way, uh, if a person is cutting, there could be a number of reasons why he or she might be doing that. One possible option is that it's demonic influence, but it's not the only possible option. So you don't want to jump there and just and make the uh, you know, equation that it's always that. But it certainly is not an option that should be removed from the table because it certainly could be uh, uh, what's going on. All right, next, uh, next question. Let's turn over the Gospel of John just for a couple of comments on this one. Uh, John 12, and then we'll back up a few chapters to John 7. The question says this, Pastor Brian, it seems like Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, made many statements that his hearers didn't understand or they misinterpreted. Is there a reason he did this, or is it simply showing their temporal perspective on everything? I think the answer to that question is that this issue is closely related to why Jesus spoke in parables. You'll remember that when Jesus began his ministry, he began speaking in a very straightforward manner. But when the people rejected him, especially when the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was committed, where they took what they knew to be the Holy Spirit's empowering of Jesus and attributed that to Satan, Jesus immediately changed his approach and began speaking in parables. And John refers to this, uh, this, this change in chapter 12. He says in verse 37, But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. So notice very carefully that in verse 37 they would not believe, and then in verse 39 they could not believe. They willfully chose not to believe, and reject the evidence, the straightforward evidence that Jesus gave them. And in time, they could not believe. And as John thought about that, he thought of this passage from Isaiah. But uh, understand that when Jesus spoke, and he did speak sometimes in metaphors and pictures that were hard to grasp. I'm sure if you are intellectually honest, you will, like me, say, you know what? When I'm reading the Gospels, and there are times when Jesus rebuked his disciples for not understanding I'm glad I wasn't there because I'd have been rebuked. You know, I didn't know. What is he saying there? I read one of those this week. You know, I was reading the Gospel of Mark, reading ahead, and I read about where the disciples were, had to go quickly across the lake, and they forgot to bring bread. It was obviously their responsibility. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they said, ah, oh, it's because we forgot to bring bread. And man, 
you'll wait till we get there. But I mean, Jesus asked them like seven questions in a row that really were indicting. You know, how could you be thinking about bread after you saw what I did to the 5,000, the 4,000? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about doctrine and leaven, etc. And I thought, I'd have been right there. You know, I, so uh, I'd have been thinking, oh, it's because I forgot that you know, it's my job to bring bread and I forgot it. So we, we all understand that. But here's a very encouraging verse. Look at John 7. John 7. Verse 17, Jesus says this, If anyone wills to do his will, that's a key statement. If anyone really wants to do the will of God, he shall know concerning the doctrine of the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, this isn't exactly related to the question, but I, I mean exactly identically in line, but it's related to the question. This is a statement by Jesus saying, listen, if anyone really wants to do the will of God, it's not going to be just a, an issue of a lack of understanding that holds him back. He'll know. This is kind of related to the often repeated comment that the Lord says, you know, you'll find me if you seek for me with all your heart. That's kind of this idea. If you really want to know, if you really want to understand, yeah, maybe there are things that Jesus said that, you know, that in our temporal perspective we would misunderstand, but, but Jesus spoke in a way, certainly to weed out those who were superficial, and to instruct those who were sincere, but even the sincere didn't always get it. But if you were serious about it, or take this verse, if you really were committed to doing the will of God, you wanted to know God, you want to know the truth, there's the promise that you would know it. Jesus is not going to leave any genuine, true seeker just in the dark just because he can't understand. So he, he spoke in this way, obviously, to weed out the uh, distinction between the superficial and the genuine. All right, next question. Let's turn over to James 2. James chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 14. And it says, here's the question. These verses, we'll read them here in just a second. These, these verses appear to be in conflict with John 3.16 and other passages. Because it appears to stress the importance of works over faith in achieving eternal salvation. Please explain this. And please tell about the uh, role of works in eternal salvation. And this is a question that has been wrestled with down through the ages. I mean, Martin Luther at one point, thankfully he recanted of this, but at one point, you know, he was so struggling over this passage that he said, James is a right, straw epistle. It has no gospel character to it. I'm not even sure it should be in the New Testament. I mean, that's how much he struggled, because he knew, he knew from studying Romans and Galatians and Psalms that the, the, the biblical position of salvation is justification by grace alone through faith alone. He knew that. So when he encountered this passage, he didn't know what to do with it. And he's not the first nor the last to wrestle with that. So it's a good question you ask. But notice, if you just walk through it, it becomes clear what James is saying. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, that's key. James is not acknowledging that this person has faith. It's someone who claims to have faith, but no works. He if he says he has faith. And then, I think all other translations, NASB, NIV, ESV, say something like this, and rightly so. Can that faith save him? James is not asking if faith can save, because the answer to that question is yes. Salvation is by grace through faith. What James is asking is, 
Can a faith that's merely intellectual assent to facts but has no works to back it up, can that kind of faith save a person? And the answer to that question is no. We, we talked about that this morning. The demons believe all the truth. They know the truth. They believe it. That doesn't save them. That's the issue that James is dealing with here. And he illustrates it. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, it does not, does not have works, is dead. So what James is arguing here, he's not disagreeing with the Pauline doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. Not at all. He is agreeing with it and saying, that's right. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, but true faith never stands alone. True faith is, if it is genuine faith, it is a, a radical transformation of a person's life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. So James doesn't disagree with Paul. He disagrees with a distortion of Paul's teaching. Those who would take Paul's teaching and say, that's right, salvation is by grace through faith, so all you have to do is check the box, say you believe, and you're good to go. James says, no, no, that's not faith. That's not saving faith. So in answer to your question, uh, please tell about the role of works in eternal salvation. Works have no role in achieving, and that's even a poor term, but I'll use that term. Works have no role in receiving eternal salvation, except that they are a confirmation. But they, are, they, are, they play no part whatsoever. Because both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, salvation has always been by grace, through faith alone. The only difference between Old and New Testament is the object of faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed Yahweh. It was credited him for righteousness. He believed in the true God, and he was justified. Paul quotes that several times in the New Testament. Today, our faith is in Jesus Christ specifically. But it's still by grace alone, through faith alone. And the object today in the New Testament era is in Christ alone. So there is no contradiction between James and Paul or James, John 3.16. There is actually a very complementary uh, relationship. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith. But true faith never stands alone because true faith results in a transformed life that will issue forth in works. And that's what James is saying. All right, next question says this. Uh, uh, what are the seven spirits of God in, in Revelation 1, 4, 4, 5, 5, 6? This is mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. There are two possibilities, and I'll just mention these passages. You can look at both of them. Isaiah eleven two lists seven key roles or ministries of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 depicts the Holy Spirit in a a sevenfold fullness. And since the book of Revelation, for the most part, borrows a lot of its symbolism from the Old Testament, not all of it, but most of the symbolism you can find somewhere in the Old Testament, it's safe to conclude that that picture somehow is alluding back to an Old Testament passage. So either Isaiah 11 to Zechariah 4, whichever one you choose, both of them are a reference to the Spirit in all of His fullness. Isaiah 11 to more his, the fullness of His ministry or work, Zechariah 4, more the fullness of his person. So it's a reference to the Spirit in all of his fullness. And you can check out those two passages and take your pick as to which you, which you would think. All right, next question is, again, related. I kind of covered this, but I'll hit it again on the Mark passage from this morning. Uh, the person says, I've wondered uh, if uh, present-day cutters, self-mutilators, 
are trying to atone for their own sin, perhaps believing demonic lies. Though some say they do it to release or feel pain, they cannot feel without cutting. My question is this. Is that the demon speaking and not the person as in these verses in Mark chapter 5? And again, I would say, certainly cannot pull that off the table. You can't rule that out. But again, I want to stress it's a case-by-case basis. Uh, There could be a a variety of reasons. In other words, you could say, why do people lie? You can't just say, the reason all people lie is Satan. No, there are a lot of reasons why people lie. But lying is wrong regardless of the reasons. So why do people cut? Well, you can't just say it's always prompted by a demon. So case-by-case basis, uh, we need to be careful not to assume all cutting is demonic, though it may be. The reasons could be varied in in each situation. Next question says this, uh, once a demon has established itself in a person, do more demons usually join in there? As this, again, going off this morning, legion, 6,000, the term used for 6,000 soldiers, the demon says we are legion. Um, So once a demon has established itself in a person, do more demons usually join it there? Uh, I don't know that we have enough biblical evidence to say usually. Your question says usually, but I would say it's certainly not uncommon. The biblical evidence we see would not be uncommon, but I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying usually that that's the majority of the time necessarily. I don't think we have enough biblical data to make that type of assertion. All right, next question uh, says this. What is the difference, and I, I want to apologize. I, I read this several times, and whoever asked this, if you want to catch me afterwards, I, I, maybe I'm not reading your question uh, correctly. It says, what is the difference between the NIV, and then it looks like, I c- can't quite read, NLIV or NTIV, and there, there isn't any English translation on that. Um, is anything... Uh, inherently wrong with the, again, N-T-I-V, or et cetera. So I'm going to assume, just to answer the question, you're referring to the difference between the N-I-V and the T-N-I-V, today's N-I-V. That's, I think. Um, the, the T-N-I-V, today's N-I-V, uh, the, the problem, you say, is there anything inherently wrong, any problem? Yes, there is. Uh, the T-N-I-V has gender neutral, or it's usually in translation circles called inclusive language. In other words, gender neutral is the other term that's sometimes used. Instead of saying he, it just will say, uh, it won't say he or she, it will be gender neutral. That's why that's one of the terms that's used. Now, I understand some of that in translation. For example, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 literally says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, it doesn't obviously mean just if any man is in Christ, because if any woman is in Christ, she's also a new creation. So if, if by chance someone would read 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, and they would assume that that only means men, then you could argue, maybe that's best to translate that, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. So I could see that in those types of situations. I understand some of it, and I can understand the rationale, but... The problem in the inclusive language is that it makes things gender neutral where it should be kept masculine, and then the change is not good. So for that reason, if you're asking about the TNIV, and not not positive, you can catch me afterwards, uh, that's why I wouldn't endorse it for that reason. Um, So if that's the question, that would be my answer. 
Uh, next question, uh, this one was already asked in one of the earlier, does demon possession still occur today? Yes, as I say, but probably not as common as what we see in first century Israel. Uh, this may be because many of those demons were sent to the abyss, and demons don't want to be sent there. They want their freedom. It's just conjecture. Scripture doesn't specifically uh, tell us. Uh, next question says this, uh, what is your general opinion of street preaching? Uh, if one of the elders from GBC wanted to preach on a street corner downtown or on a campus, uh, would you encourage that, support them in that? Well, my answer would be it just depends on how it's done. I've seen it both ways through the years. I've seen street preaching that is uh, clearly, unmistakably counterproductive. I remember a few years ago going up, going up to uh, MSU campus because there were some street preachers up there, and it, it was just a debacle. I mean, the, it, it just was, you know, uh, I can't I think it was... And I got a copy of their book, Jed and Cindy Smock, I think was the last name. I don't know. But, but anyway, it, it, there was just nothing productive. And it was just a, uh, it was a sad joke. I mean, they just, people were standing around laughing at them because, they, you know, they, just the, their antics and et cetera. So that kind of thing is obviously not productive. In fact, probably counterproductive because people then equate that with Christianity. Oh, that's a Christian. But I've seen street preaching. I remember back uh, in Chicago when I was at Moody, uh, and, of course, this go back, goes back a number of years, but street preaching was pretty popular. Of course, in a bigger city, there's a different dynamic. So, you know, if you've ever, if you're familiar with, the, for example, the ministry of Jews for Jesus, uh, when they're in big cities, they do things that probably in other settings would be seen as not helpful, not, but, you know, in, in a bigger city, if they're in New York or Chicago, they're very confront, confrontive in your face, and people will engage them in conversation. It's just maybe that's sort of expected in a big city. You, you have all kinds, and people don't sort of shy away from it. So you, you can't just answer that question uh, in a vacuum. Depends on how it's done, where it's done, etc. But I certainly wouldn't make a blanket statement that street preaching is something that shouldn't be engaged in. Because there are settings, and there are approaches where street preaching can at least raise questions in people's mind or engage in conversation. So you know, the old saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you've seen street preaching that was not good, don't assume that it can't be in some settings, some cultures, some situations, be something that the Lord could use. Okay, back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2. It says this, of course you're familiar with verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Genesis 1-2, here's the question. In Genesis 1-2, before the six-day creation account, the earth is formless and void. Does this mean there was some form of the earth in existence before day one? And the answer to the question is, yes, there was, but, please hear this, but not planet Earth. It was the Earth, and I have Earth in my notes that I jotted down this afternoon. It was the Earth, or matter, that was used to create planet Earth. So, contrary to the, probably the most common view of Genesis 1-1, I don't think Genesis 1-1 is sort of a title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. And then this is how he did it, etc. No, this is all, the first several verses are all a chronology of what God did. So God created the heavens, you could translate that, spaces and the earth, the, the, the matter. 
And this earth matter was without form at this point until God spoke and light, etc. So the earth, the earth matter was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, may indicate it was a, a black hole matter. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, God introduces, let there be light. And there was light. And so God now begins to take these spaces and, and this matter and begins to create or form what we know as planet earth and the heavens, etc. So in answer to your question, was some form of the earth in existence before day one? You could say yes, but don't assume by yes that means there was a planet earth of some kind and then there was another planet earth later. No, it was the earth or matter used that God formed uh, planet earth from or used to form planet earth. Oh, next question says this. um, Pastor Brian, on page 128 of his new book, Strange Fire, John MacArthur says that Miller and White of the Seventh-day Adventists prophesied the second coming of Jesus Christ was uh, on a certain date. It was wrong, of course. And then they changed it to a later date. Of course, it was also wrong again. Uh, since they are... Now, that's... that I went back and read page 128 this afternoon. That's what it says. Okay, that's where it stops. So I want to make it clear that this next statement is not from page 128 of the book. This is the questioner's comment. I'm not suggesting it's wrong. I'm just want to make it clear that that's what the book illustrates, the problems in modern-day Christianity trying to do prophecy, is that it puts uh, a a lot of people in the same category as those who make these ridiculous predictions that don't come true, etc. Okay, now here's the statement, not in the book, but by the questioner. Since they are false prophets, they will spend eternity in hell, according to 2 Peter. My question is this. If a person believes all the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, are they going to spend their eternity in hell? Also, do you think that Miller and White are going to spend their eternity in hell? And my answer to that would be this. It is possible, I'm not suggesting that they were true believers, but I'm just saying it is possible for true believers to believe a lot of wrong things. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't have the whole New Testament telling us what we should believe because it would just be automatic that every Christian believes the right thing. Every Christian doesn't believe the right thing. So it's possible for true believers to believe wrong things. And it is possible for true believers to teach wrong things. I mean, I hope we would all agree on that, right? In other words, if you teach something wrong, that doesn't make you a false teacher in the sense of the New Testament use of that term. Now, stay with me here. In other words, teaching something that's false doesn't make you a false teacher. If it does, I'm a false teacher, because I know I've taught some things that were false. I don't know what they are necessarily, but I'm sure I haven't taught everything accurately. Okay? So, don't assume that if someone teaches something that's wrong, that that person is a false teacher in the sense of the New Testament usage of the term of condemnation. And in fact, you mentioned... John MacArthur, at one point in his life, John MacArthur believed in and taught very strongly, because I have it on record, he taught, um, he taught unlimited atonement. Now he's changed his view and he teaches limited atonement, so he's wrong on one or the other. So is he a false teacher? No, I mean, he taught something falsely. Either he used to teach it falsely or he's teaching something falsely, depending on where you land on the issue. But that doesn't make someone a false teacher. Okay, A false teacher 
When the New Testament talks about a false teacher who is damned to hell, it is someone who teaches heretical, damning error. We're talking about issues related to salvation, the person of Christ, etc. And I only say that because it's, it's, it's very important that we're careful not to, if we disagree with someone's interpretation of something, to call them a false teacher and imply they fall under the condemnation of the New Testament false teachers. So it is possible for true believers to believe wrong things and teach wrong things, or there would be no, te- new, no New Testament warnings like what we have to believe the right things and teach the right things. All right? So now in response to your question, my answer would be this without making a definitive statement. If there are doctrines in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and it's been years. I've read the book, the official book, What Seventh-day Adventists Believe. It's their official doctrinal statement. But I read it so many years ago, I can't tell you what. I know what some of their peculiar doctrines are. I don't know what all of them are. Uh, I know that their official doctrinal position is that if you worship on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast. Now, not all Seventh-day Adventists believe that, but that is their official position. Um, So, In answer to your question, it's hard to answer it because there is an official position of the church, and then there is what each individual church may teach or believe, and then there is what people in those churches believe. They may or may not believe what their church teaches or what their denomination teaches. So rather than be definitive, I would just say this. If you can point out official doctrinal position of the Seventh-day Adventist church that are damning doctrines, I'm not talking about different views on you know, pre-trib, mid-trib. I'm talking about damning doctrines on the person of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, etc. Then the answer to the question would be, yes, if a person believes those heretical damning doctrines, then they can't be saved. But if a person believes that it is right to worship on Saturday, which you can't defend biblically, but if a person believes that, that will not send a person to hell. If a person believes, like Seventh-day Adventists believe, that we are under the law and ought to follow the, the, uh, the uh, dietary laws, which is not true, that does not send anyone to hell. There were believers in the first century, by the way, that believed you should follow the dietary laws. They were wrong, but they were saved. So in answer to your question, if anybody, whether you say Miller, White, people in Seventh-day Adventist Church, people in Grace Bible Church, wherever, if people believe doctrines that are damning and heretical, then they will spend eternity in hell. But not all doctrines fall into that same category. So that would be my answer. So if you have, you know, a doctrinal statement that says, here it is, and it says, you know, Jesus isn't God, and if they believe that, they can't be saved. That's clear from John 8, 24. But we'd have to be specific with the doctrines, all right? All right, next question says this. Um, Explain how a few priests logistically could handle all the sacrifices the Jewish people were required to bring to the tabernacle, or later to the temple? And I understand that question, but the, actually, there was a very large number of priests. We, we think there were just a few. In fact, there were so many priests that when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was on duty for his service as priest, do you remember that? That's when he, he was on duty, and then the angel appeared to him to say he was gonna, uh, his son was going to, he'd have a son, he'd be unique, etc. That was one of his two annual stints. In other words, his division only had two stints per year because there there was such a large number of priests that were active in the whole temple system. So if your picture is that there were just a few, and how are they going to get it done? It's actually the opposite. There were so many that they only were involved in it 
very minimally throughout a given year. All right, next question says this. Um, we have two more, so we'll be able to get them in here quickly. It says, what biblically constitutes a marriage between a man and a woman? Well, a marriage is a marriage when it is legally ratified by whatever forms used in a given culture or country. For example, Joseph and Mary were legally married when they were betrothed. They went through the betrothal process. At that point, they were legally married, though they didn't come together physically as husband and wife because the Jewish ceremony had two phases to it, legal betrothal and then later consummation of the marriage. So they were legally married when they were betrothed because that was the legal process in that culture. In our country, it's when you get a marriage license or something similar and are married by someone who can legal marry, legally marry you. So, you know, I mean, theoretically, it could be, you know, if you're an Eskimo, if in that culture it's when you each take a snowball and throw it at each other, you're legally married. Well, then everybody in that culture knows you're legally married at that point. Whatever it happens to be, that's what constitutes a marriage. God doesn't give an exact form. You have to follow this form because in the Jewish setting, the Greek setting, it may be different. But whatever was recognized by society as the legally binding contract of marriage is what God would recognize. And then the final question says this, uh, does God see a divorced couple as divorced? And the answer to that question is this, God recognizes a divorce if it is biblically valid, not necessarily just legal. And what I mean by that, in Matthew 19, Jesus said, if you divorce not based on sexual immorality and marry another you're committing adultery. In other words, God doesn't recognize that as a valid divorce and that you have grounds for remarriage. So just because you go through the legal process and it's recognized legally, God may not recognize. So God recognizes a divorce if it is biblically valid, not just legally valid. valid. Matthew 19 would be the key passage on that. All right, great questions. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. And uh, those who are heading toward the reception can do that as soon as we close. And we can... Meet those uh, families over there who participated in the parent-child dedication tonight. Father, thank you for our evening together. What a joy it has been just to be together with your people and uh, the variety of uh, components tonight, the parent-child dedication, sending out the turkey team, uh, hearing these young people play music unto you for your glory and uh, looking into your word on these very important issues. Continue to grant us clarity insight and understanding, not merely to fill our heads, but to uh, give us greater passion for you and godliness in life. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.